0: I'm Matthew Weldon. Yeah. I'm your host, Jim Pesciuch.
1: We're rolling. Okay. Three. Oh.
0: Wait, wait, wait. Press record.
1: Yep. Yeah. Three, Three, two, one. one. Hello everyone, I'm your host Matthew Weldon and welcome to Season 6 of Gem Pursuit. I'm here as always with my trusty co-host Elise Ketcher. Elise, it's Season 6, we are back.
0: Season 6 everyone, welcome back. Season 6 is something that I personally am so super excited about. Uh, Because we're talking about the Golden Girls, the unsung heroines of jewellery. And we're going to be delving into some of the incredible women who have been the unsung heroes
1: of jewellery. Yeah, I mean, it was uh, was a tough competition, I think. There was a few options that we were going to talk about. A couple of different series, which again, we might revisit in in later series. But I think there was a couple of things that, that really made us go in this direction i think number one is there was a couple of exhibitions on uh, fabergé exhibition in london there was a cartier exhibition in paris um and they had a lot of information about these particular women and it's popping up more and more about attributing the particular designs and jewelry pieces to these golden girls and we wanted to delve right into that
0: yeah, and I mean it, it's more common today to see uh, women creating jewelry for women, but this was really a male-dominated industry, and even to find um, to find women who held positions of power because of course we know that a lot of the workshops had stringers like for pearls and things like that that were ladies but those who actually held some type of influence uh, along the creative process or um, direction or designing a lot of the time we didn't see women in those positions. But this season we're going to be talking about the lives of these women. We're going to be uncovering their love stories. We're going to be finding out things that aren't written about in any of the books that we've read and bringing it to you. So, And we're doing that through Uh, specialists in those areas so we're going out and we're interviewing people not just here in dublin but all over the world and i am incredibly excited to bring the stories that we've found to you
1: yeah and a few trips to european capitals never goes amiss look we're super excited we'd like to welcome you all back first stop is we're on the road we are going to i suppose what a lot of people would call one of the hearts of jewelry design and of course, it is Le Joli Paris. We're gonna meet in this trip with Olivier Bachet, who wrote this incredible book about Cartier. There's also the Cartier I- exhibition on Islamic art, which has a section on this particular lady, Jean Toussaint. Elise, let's get going. Bienvenue, rock. Bienvenue, rock. Bienvenue. Merci we have to catch one of
0: those shuttles to the other We're going to 107 Rue de Reveille We're going to the um, exhibit, Cartier
1: exhibit it A?
0: It's not in the loop,
1: yeah, it's around right. the corner Is it up here to the left or to the right? Yeah
0: we're going to be looking at how Islamic art has shaped the way in which Cartier designers created their pieces. So the influence, the change in style, the materials used because a lot of the materials would have been considered semi-precious but because of Fabergé and the way that Fabergé used semi-precious gemstones in their particular items, Cartier were then influenced by that and then went to Islamic art and India to gain inspiration. So that's what this whole exhibit is about.
1: Yes. And Jean Toussaint, when she was uh, appointed creative director in 1933, shortly after she actually went to India to meet up with the contacts that Cartier had there, that uh, Jacques had a lot of car- contacts in India. And, um, yeah, she was, before that, in the 20s, as Elise said, they didn't really want to use, like, you know, your, your semi-precious stones. It was, it was only the best sapphires, the best rubies, so-called best, anyway, uh, but they would use, like, the paler stones, like, the, your salon stones, your salon sapphires, and then that goes into Jean Toussaint's initial decade uh, in Cartier.
0: Arts decorative. That, that tiara would look nice on me. <laughs> It'd look nice it? on you
1: too. <laughs> I like to see you in that turquoise one actually. Love it. They got a little headphone. It's like Ross's one actually. Were these all designed by Gian Toussaint?
0: So she didn't design, she was a creative director. So she was known um, in the social circles of Paris as a. Um, as a stylish woman. She hung around with Coco Chanel. She's always seen wearing pearls around, very unusual um, type of dressing sense. But although she wasn't considered, like, a beauty, she was very magnetic, and people, specifically Louis Cartier, was drawn to her, her way of... Dressing, the way that she liked to be entertained, the things that she liked to surround herself with. She was known for seeing style in everything. So her life was mostly about beauty um, because her beginnings were completely impoverished. So as she grew older, everything that that surrounded her had an element of style and beauty to it. So, you know, in terms of what you see here, she didn't design it, but she gave the direction on the way in which they should go. So, and that, you know, obviously you can see here, she was very much in the forefront of the Art Deco movement. That's what she was. She was literally on on the edge of that movement and kind of pushed Cartier over the edge into that new world.
1: If you were to describe this piece that we're looking at now, it's large cabochon emeralds. Uh, So cabochon round cut, and they're inset with cabochon rubies and diamonds and platinum in the design of a flower set into the actual emeralds themselves. Really quite incredible. Uh, and as I said, pushing the style of Art Deco into the next kind of movement. And if you look at that tiara and at that pattern here, very Oriental Persian-looking pattern, and it's perfectly mimicked in the rock crystal. You can probably very, barely see it, actually, in between the top row of diamonds and this uh, tiara and the bottom. Very thin layer of carved rock crystal. That's tying together that Art Deco style, but then this new age... Uh, version design, uh, oriental kind of design. Mixing the two together and that's, again, mixing the materials in addition to the styles. Did you see that rock crystal? It
0: looks amazing. I can't.
1: There's a little Faberge egg over there too.
0: The worst thing about going to an exhibit is we're used to touching everything. So not being able to actually put that on is super difficult, <laughs> especially since I wear tiaras every day.
1: Um, and that would
0: look fabulous on me.
1: <laughs> These pieces here, you know, this, uh, this is in a, in a twee, which is like a cigarette case. Um, draws inspiration from a pen box. And obviously it's decorated very... Um, intricately and you can see the Islamic style patterned on the front, cabbage and sapphire and then this one here is a vanity case but you know just it's it's fascinating the trade today, you do see pieces like this, these are obviously like the Rolls Royce examples but like it's not beyond imagination that something like this could be in someone's personal collection they might not know what it is you know.
0: especially when you're looking at materials that historically aren't considered very um, expensive or even today like we can go down to the, to the local gem shop and we could buy like a rough piece of onyx very cheaply so when you look at something that's beaded with onyx or studded with onyx you don't necessarily think oh this is like a very precious item but in fact this is what style does it gives, uh, it gives a value to something that's considered not valuable
1: but I think in that, is that when it goes from being jewellery, uh, like there's, there's a step in jewellery that it's not just the gemstones, it's not just the materials, it moves to like art. And Correct. That's when the materials are actually not consequential. I mean, you don't look at a painting and say, what's the value of the pigments the on the canvas like? You know, it's it's about the art. And I think Cartier were one of the first, uh, one of the first ones to move from jewellery to like art. Yeah, I think you can really see the Indian influence coming through on these particular pieces. We're looking at um, a dagger and sheath here. And, like, it's encrusted with rubies and emeralds. And the actual handle is carved jade. And jade, of course, which is perfect for a dagger handle that's it's so tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it can be carved, so you can, you can carve jade, um, but it won't break. It'll, be quite, it'll be quite durable, so, if you know, if it incurs an impact or something like that. But... When you look at Cartier, certainly their tutti-frutti um, styles and their tutti fruity pieces, that really screams it to me. I mean, you can clearly see the emeralds and the rubies coming through. Now, this is Cartier, kind of typical 1920s. Um, you've got this beautiful, large, lozenge-shaped cabochon emerald. And then it's held in by almost two rings of... Uh, coral sort of like almost Olympic rings holding this cabochon in the middle and these beautiful graduating pearls all the way out to the end and in the clasp, and this is the intention to do that I actually love in fine jewellery, the clasp has three matching tiny little cabochon emeralds that match into the large central, just beautiful and that's um, 1921 so just before Toussaint but typical art deco, but Starting to introduce some of the other materials too, like the coral in that one. Um, natural pearls, maybe quite valuable. Um.
0: So this would have been like a source of inspiration that would have been used. Um, a lot of our listeners would have seen Oceans 8, where you see the large kind of bib necklace that is worn that's created mm. by Cartier. And these kind of large bibs that were worn by the Maharajas of, of the of these early 1900s uh, period is really the source of inspiration for that because they displayed their wealth through their gemstones and through their outer appearance to the masses. And bibs were a large way of doing that.
1: The man himself, huh? who has actually yet to be mentioned even still. We haven't haven't seen her name yet. I haven't seen her name. Not one. It's a lot about this Charles Jaco and I remember reading the the recent uh, uh, Cartier released the Bricknell book but um, he featured heavily in that as well. He is an important designer but... Are we going to see her name here at some point? I would certainly hope so because... um, Cartier really were very big jewelers um, pre-1930 but today their most desired pieces are like 30s, 40s, 50s Uh, of course stuff from earlier as well but it's one of their trademark times and she was the creative director at that time so it's it's, uh, you'd you'd assume, I'd assume that her name is yet to come but uh, even those uh, emeralds that are in that necklace there for Jean de in cartier Those basic cuts of emeralds, although they're, they're cabochon, they look like very good color, they would have been considered like, uncut, not up to standard. They wouldn't have been used in Cartier jewelry. Mm-hmm. But you can see the fine platinum mounts, diamond set, like the, the best of what Cartier had, and then they're using these different stones, gives something a completely different look. Um, new, obviously those emeralds are enormous, so they're quite special for that. But they would have been considered oh, below Cartier before. But obviously there it makes a stunning necklace. Even that one there in the middle, you can clearly see on the left-hand side of that emerald, the coloration is not great. The one in the middle has very good colour. Um, but yet, yeah, they wouldn't have been used before 1930s for Cartier jewellery. And that one's 38, so... Absolutely
0: amazing.
1: What I don't understand, and something I need to look up, is the relationship between Cartier, London, New York, and Farris, and who had the creative direction for the three shots. <laughs> <laughs> i look good on you, Liz. it will look good on anyone. Not me. Yes,
0: it would look on
1: anyone. No, I thought it all there, it was just a different shot. Mm-hmm. Still no... No. Yeah. know Jacques. Charles Jacot. I think your man Charles Jacot was actually overlooked for the position of creative director. By her. By her, yeah. Yeah. It's just interesting.
0: <laughs> the creative genius behind something. We have to remember a lot of the time, it isn't just a one-man show. And I find it a little bit disheartening to know that even though she had a huge influence on what we see here that she isn't mentioned anywhere although her creative genius was used. It's a little bit easier with paintings when you have the model who is painted because you can't deny that they were a part of the creative process because they were the actual muse for the the piece. But with something like this the only person who's getting the glory is the person who designed the piece, even though there was someone behind them directing them at what looked good and what didn't look good, you know. And she really should be mentioned somewhere.
1: But well, this should be for the handbags. In- yeah. She started off in handbags to her handbags. Her name should be here then. Yeah, but look at the clip. Look at that jay clip. It's amazing.
0: I okay. think we found her. From the 1920s to the 1990s, textiles were repurposed as evening bags with gemstones, clasps, perhaps at the instigation of Diane Toussaint, who is the director of the so-called S-Department Accessories and Bags.
1: But even that language is a bit woolly. Perhaps at the instigation of Diane Toussaint.
0: I'd say we've been here for about 45 minutes. And it's the, we're, she's a buy note on a handbag area
1: (laughs) we have have to be careful we're not having any confirmation bias here in terms of we're looking for something and we see something that sort of fits that but it is halfway through the the display is on two sides of this kind of gallery and we're just at the end of the first side
0: we've mostly looked at like the very very high jewellery which is expected when you're looking at a when you're looking at a exhibit, you want people to come in. So the draw is to come in and see the tiaras and the amazing emerald necklaces. But her, um, her influence is a lot more than a clasp on a handbag.
1: Well, I was just going to say, but that clasp for me is one of the best made things I've seen here.
0: We have a mention. We have a mention of her. Over we? by my favorite necklace. Jeanne Toussaint became artistic director of Cartier Paris in 1933 and imposed her taste for jewels in volume. Under her direction, the influence of India is clear, notably in the use of precious stones cut in ball shapes and mounted in bunches or multiple strands.
1: I think it's very important, before we go in to talk to Olivia Bachet, to give you a bit of context about Jean Toussaint in terms of how she you know, built her career in Cardi, how she got to Cardi and kind of the different camps, as it were, that surround Jean Toussaint. And, and just to say as well, those distinctive Parisian noises, you might hear some of those uh, echoing through our chat with Olivier Bache. You know, we were at the mercy of the, the local builders and trains and sirens, whatever's going on in Paris, But Ross, our, our producer, has done amazing work in kind of drowning them out a little bit. so, um, so it's, it's authentic par, uh, Paris sounds. But at least about the Jean Toussaint, she is, in a way, a, a controversial figure.
0: She is, and I think any woman in the jewellery industry at this time would have had some kind of um, why is she there, question mark, above her head. Um, and in, we'll talk a little bit about this with Olivier Bachet, but really um, many, many people within the jewellery industry sit either on the fence with this or they sit in the Charles Jaco camp or they sit in... Uh, the Jean Toussaint Camp um, and what does that mean we'll delve a little bit more about in that that in the interview with Olivier Bache but what we're trying to do in this podcast is kind of highlight what we did find about her what we did see in the exhibits about her and the things that are attributed to her but we do recognize that in the jewelry industry not everybody has the same feelings towards her. Okay.
1: Yeah, Merci. Yes. Number four. I have to close one. door no one will be open. Bonjour Olivier. Bonjour. Bonjour.
0: Bonjour. 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 Euh, martyr, bonjour. Bonjour. Bonjour.
1: Bonjour. 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 We have a
0: really large collection of jewellery books and we go through them and I train the staff on on pieces and markings and things like that. And really what you see with a lot of the Cartier books is the same pieces regurgitated over and over and over again. Um, And your book was incredible because they were pieces that I had never seen before. Lots of different objects in there that you see them for the first time and automatically have, I guess, the wow moment that Cartier are known for, for the pairing of gemstones, the techniques that are used and so on and so forth. But what I wanted to ask you is how did you get into this particular industry, like your backstory? Um, and then what drew you to the Cartier firm?
2: It's a question. It's a story of a friendship. My partner, mm-hmm. uh, we were neighbors when we were kids, and so we basically we grew up together, you know. Like we uh, uh, were in the same uh, class, we uh, were uh, having uh, the same uh, girls, you know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, but um, I did uh, very uh, regular uh, uh, studies at the university, and he immediately went to work when he was 18 with his grandfather, who was a diamond dealer. And after a while, I was a bit fed up with uh, what I was doing. And so he asked me to work with him, so that's what I did and uh, that's uh, that's how it it began.
0: How it began. And Cartier, how does that...
2: Cartier, I'm going to tell you why, because Cartier, there are are two big advantages with Cartier. First of all, it's a mass production. The production is so big that basically you can work only with Cartier, the goods. You You can buy and sell only Cartier and it's enough. First and second, um, it's the production is like a, 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 it goes through a complete century. It began basically at the beginning of the 9th, 20th century, the, the real cartier I'm talking about the real cartier, yes. the cartier we know, mm-hmm. until now. So it's it's a very it's super long period. Mm-hmm. All kind of styles, so that's very interesting. The quality is except except for new york i'm going i'm not going to tell that but except for new york the quality is there mm. the style is there the, the 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 quality the workmanship is there so um, so and, and and my personal taste also uh really it, 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 yeah, it's captain. important so uh, i really i mean for the deco period the, the, what we what you saw at the exhibition I think it was, uh, it was, uh, Cartier was really the best of the best.
1: Yes. Which is not
2: the truth for the, the, the end of the 19th century, but uh, for that period,
1: Cartier is really the master. Mm-hmm. So, so with the three, I suppose it was the three brothers kind of elevated that to another level, really, didn't they? The... Yes, and actually, they, it, it, was,
2: it was a good team because they all had different uh, uh, skills. Mm-hmm. louis was really uh into art you know and uh, like uh, uh oriental civilizations uh, china persia india uh pierre yeah. was uh, the best uh, uh commercial guy if mm-hmm. I, if i can yeah. say and he know. he was the he character. was totally focused on uh, doing business and making money you know and jack and Jacques was very into uh, uh stones pearls uh, because he was taking care of India, yeah, he of course. To India. So, um, so, you know, they had different skills and it was a good match altogether. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. I think that's, uh we do learn from that a lot in the jewelry industry that uh, you can have a lot of passion for jewelry, but you can't make any money out of it if you aren't commercial or have the right buyers.
2: Actually, I think the first, the, the most important quality of the Cartier Brothers was this commercial aspect. They were fantastic businessmen, Mm -hmm. fantastic businessmen. And if you don't understand that, you do not understand how Cartier became so big in a very short period. Because if you think about the moment they settled down in Rue de la Paix in 1899, and let's say the 1925 exhibition, like uh, Mm -hmm. 25 years Mm -hmm. later, one generation later, they they were uh, number one. Yeah. Known all over the world, like selling to everyone, to every wealthy people, like to all the the European kings and queens. Every style, every. Taste. I mean, in, in, if you think about it, in twenty five, because when when they they settled down in Rue de la Paix, okay, it was an established uh, jury, but it was okay one amongst others. Mm-hmm. You know, it was not as important yeah. as Boucheron, yeah. for instance. Mm-hmm. So um, this commercial aspect is. Super important. Mm
0: -hmm. I guess um, the wrong time for Jeanne Toussaint to enter the the mix of the brothers because I've read a few letters where they're a little bit um, hesitant, so to say, with her and Louis' relationship, um, because obviously she was known as a kind of lady of the night. At, the, at that particular point in time and didn't have a great reputation so how do you reckon that kind of changed the, the dynamics between the brothers and the father even
2: well of course uh, Jeanne Toussaint she was what we, what we call in French uh, a demi-mondaine forgive my, my vocabulary it's maybe not right but it's half a socialite yes. um, um, like the socialites yeah. today yeah it doesn't uh, translate perfectly, but yeah, su- that's what it would be. Supported by a rich man, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean. Yeah. So uh, that's what she was, and, uh, but you can understand that because she, she really grew up in misery, she had a miserable life mm-hmm. during her, her childhood, and um, well, um, I, think, I think that when she met Louis, they just fall in love mm. together well I'm not in the secret of uh, yeah, yeah. of their mind but yeah. you know it's probably a, a love affair and of course you know it was not uh, she was not welcome in the Cartier family at the beginning because especially because Alfred Cartier the father um, during his entire life he he tried to uh, to increase the reputation of the family and of the name of Cartier mm. you know so a demi-mondaine is all the sound with a demi-mondaine you know it was not uh, it was not uh, the best for for a reputation and i think at the end that we um, uh, uh, put the company the quartier and the quartier name before his love with Jean toussaint right because uh, they split up, and uh, he married uh, Jacqueline Amassi, the Countess Amassi. Yes. Mm. and it was uh, better for your uh, CV to have uh, to to get married with a, a Hungarian countess. countess. Yeah, mm.
0: very uh, advantageous marriages. They all seem to um, secure themselves. <laughs> I think, which also grew the company as well.
1: Um, it would have been interesting to for them to. For, for, Jean to work in the company after, because of the opinions of Alfred and he. I think no, But I
2: it. think there, uh, the, the the opinion of, of the catchy change through the time. Through right. time, okay. yeah. I mean, if you if you read some letters of uh, of Pierre to Jeanne uh, in the in the fifties. It's she. You understand that she was part of the family. She becomes
0: a family member. Yeah,
2: she was definitely part of the family, and because they probably realized that uh, Jeanne was able to do anything for for, for Louis first and for Cartier in general, yes. she was really involved. She, she was really part of the Cartier family. It was uh, it was not uh, it was not as it used to be at the at the beginning of the century.
0: What do you think changed? do we know at all what changed probably her mind? first of
2: all first of all i think that Jeanne was probably an incredible woman i mean mm-hmm. she it's sure she was uh, an incredible woman like strong character yes. and she and she also had fantastic uh, artistic uh, skills mm-hmm. that's for sure mm-hmm. For sure, because all the all the Cartier production after nineteen, uh, well, she was uh, she was director of uh, IJOUY in nineteen thirty three, as you know, when uh, when uh, Louis left uh, Paris uh, for Budapest, and uh, and so she she managed the the high jewelry, the Cartier high Jewelry department uh, with a lot of uh, qualities, passion, and uh, and she was really talented. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no other way.
0: And what do you think? Like, if you were to describe her, like, quintessential style with pieces that you may have come across, what would you like? When you look at a piece, what would you say? That's definitely had her influence.
2: Well, um, all the big, important um, uh, Panther uh, pieces. Even if the four, the, even if the first, sorry, uh, Panther. Um, uh, piece of jewelry was made in 1914 so she was not there it was just like the skin you know of the panther like Mm, a kind of uh, you know like a a white background with diamonds and some uh, black enamel dots or onyx but the real uh, panther jewelry uh, appeared at the at the end of the 40s Mm -hmm. you know when she did um, a big when when Cartier did a a big uh, panther seated on a 116-carat emerald or something. Sorry, I'm not sure about the the weight of the emerald, but it Mm -hmm. was a... And the year after, in 1949, the famous, the most famous panther piece of jewelry in the world, the big one, the big panther, seated on the cashmere uh, sapphire, sapphire, the cabochon sapphire. That, uh, that was uh, purchased by the Duchess of Windsor. Mm-hmm. So uh, Jean Toussaint is behind that with Pierre Le Marchand, with Peter Lemarchand, who was the designer, who was the, 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 the designer who was uh, making this fantastic duo with uh, Jean Toussaint. Mm-hmm. Basically at the beginning of the century it was Louis Cartier Charles Jacot, the duo for Cartier,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and at the end of the 40s it was Jean Toussaint and Peter Lemarchand. So um, Jean Toussaint was a very very bad uh, designer. She mm-hmm. didn't know how to how to draw. How to draw.
0: <laughs>
2: and uh, but Peter Le Marchand was a fantastic uh, designer, and so uh, they they were uh, doing a fantastic duo. Yes. Yeah, so they had, they had the passion for uh, for the for the fauna, mm-hmm. and so yeah. that's uh, that's how it ended up with those fantastic panther uh, jewels.
1: So I, you said, uh, again, it's another great team, like uh, someone who designs and there's someone with the, the famous Goud Toussaint. So how do you think she got her influence then across to... Did she work through Marchand to get her influence into the jewels? Or how do you think she actually got her influence into the different pieces? If She didn't actually design the pieces?
2: No, no, she was very bad right, in, in designing. She was. And by the way, there is a, 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 an interesting story. Um, there is a famous picture of uh, Jeanne Toussaint's uh, hands with a pencil and, and um, you have the feeling you have the, the impression that she's uh, drawing something like a bird or something <laughs> uh, and actually she um, after uh, the, the closing of the store she asked a photographer to, to go into the Charles Jaco office with her so it was a design of Charles Jacot, <laughs> okay. and she pretend she was pretending she was drawing. And so Charles Jacot fo- uh, was uh, out, but he came back to his office to pick up an umbrella because it was raining. And she and he saw Jean Toussaint with a photographer, with a pencil and one of his uh, sketch. And 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 uh, Jacot went mad because he had yeah. a, a terrible relationship with her. Yeah. And so she pretended that it was just for marketing, like to make some uh, advert, blah, blah, blah. But actually, actually, she...
0: She was being brazen.
2: Yes, and she, I, I can understand, she, Jaco was not uh, was not pleased with the, the situation because she wanted to, we say in France, to to tirer la couverture à soi. It means that you want uh, to, that people are... Uh, uh, being focused on you, you know, on, you, on your work, on your uh, name. She wanted
0: the spotlight yeah. on her. The
2: spotlight, yeah, yeah. exactly, that's, that's, the, that's the...
0: I feel like uh, a lot it. of that, a lot of her personality, when you read about her stories that involve her, her fashion um, sense, was that she really loved the spotlight on her. And perhaps one of the reasons why she continued with her relationship with the family was because it gave her prestige especially because they'd already created a name for themselves by the time she actually became the creative director for them um so it kind of feathered her nest as well
2: yeah probably you know she had um, probably when you have a, a, such a very difficult childhood and you want to exist by yourself so it's um, it was probably important for her. Yes. I think one of her main quality was also like being having fantastic relationship with uh, with important people, yes. mm-hmm. with uh, the buyers, yes. like the, the Duchess of Windsor. Mm-hmm. She was very, uh, uh, you know, she was a very important, uh, uh,
0: socialite. like a
2: socialite. yes, yes okay. uh, probably a fantastic uh, host as well yes so she, she had a nice apartment plus DNA in, um, in a very good area in Paris and um, I've read that um, apparently it was um, always a uh, party she was doing were fantastic the apartment was uh, decorated with a fantastic taste I mean she was probably very good in in um, in entertaining those uh, you know those relationships with the people with the clients Yes. You know, it's a, uh, one more time, it's a very important part of the business that we should definitely mm. not forget. Like a business, you have to run a business, so you have to sell, yeah. and you have to, to have a good relationship with your clients, it's very important. It's not only about uh, art, and uh, it's, only, it's also about business. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think she, um, in terms of what you said about her childhood, um, she, she grew up impoverished Um, Her mum was a laundress and she basically left it all behind as the youngest child and kind of like went to to be to find someone who would provide her with a wonderful life with beauty surrounding her. And I think that's really what we notice a lot about her is she always had beautiful fashion. She always had um, beautiful objects surrounding her. Um, so when you do have those kinds of things around you, it's easy to gain inspiration and taste of what you think looks good and doesn't look good. Um, but in terms of anything that you have seen personally that has maybe her flair from Cartier, is there anything that you've seen personally that you would say is your favorite piece?
2: Oh, my favorite piece. So oh, it's so difficult to answer that question. <laughs> it's know. always the same question. <laughs> I know. No, honestly, I, I, I don't know. There's so many pieces I, I really like, but I think you can see all the production after the Second World War. You can see the influence on, on, of Jeanne Toussaint on that production. I, I would like to make a one day. I would like to make some statistics. It would be interesting. Let's say you take the um, 5,000 brooches produced by Cartier Paris in between 1945 and 1965. I think, like maybe something like around 90% of those are uh, with um, uh, flowers or animals yes. uh, mm. motifs, and uh, well, it's all about uh, nature, fauna, and flora. Mm-hmm. and this is it's not only Cartier hein? they all did that but it's very still it's very important with Cartier and I think this is very Jeanne Toussaint she was really focused on nature the the, the, the animals the birds the 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 felines uh, mm-hmm. all those and, and the flowers as well mm-hmm. this is the period where Christian Dior is very uh, is very renowned for the the kind of dress, you know, with the, cor- the, the corolla, uh, with corollas uh, dressed, you know, like a bit like uh, flowers. Yes, tulle. Yes, lots and,
0: of fluffy um, tulle.
2: Exactly, and so, <laughs> so it's in the, uh, it's in the air. Yes, you know, this kind of uh, inspiration, mm-hmm. but this is very Jeanne Toussaint, I would say. Mm-hmm. She was probably a, a fantastic uh, lady. I mean she had to because she was uh, she she ended up at the top of the most important jewelry company in the world and so you had to be uh, you had to be uh, exceptional
0: you know like you had to bring something different I think of course when we like even in our jewelry companies today when you work in such small teams to begin with, Mm. when you get to the top of that team, the people in the inner circle have to bring something that the other people in the inner circle don't have. Absolutely. You know, so um, what I can see from what we've read about the brothers is that she was the one who brought the glitterati into the realm of Cartier and kind of made that a marriage that was lasting. Um, She was able to entertain, she was magnetic. What she wore, people saw as stylish and wanted to emulate. Um, And I know that she wasn't mentioned very much inside the exhibit um, and for good reason, because a lot of the pieces were earlier than her time. But if she was to be seen wearing any of those pieces, People like she hung out with Coco Chanel, so that would have automatically made a huge impact on even the Parisian social scene.
2: Definitely, definitely. But you know, she was also, um, if you think about it, she was also daring a lot. And um, there is the this famous uh, story about the bird in a cage, a brooch made by Cartier in 1942 featuring a bird um, in in gold, coral, uh, lapis lazuli and diamonds. Beautiful. So uh, blue, white, red as the French flag um, in in a cage. And it has been made, it has been designed by Peter Le Marchand as far as I know to symbolize the, the occupation by the Germans, you know, the bird was supposed to uh, represent the city of Paris, and of course the cage, the, uh, the, the occupation. So she decided to put that brooch in the showcase of the Rue de la Paix in 1942. The front window. Yeah. Oh. And so the Germans, they were not idiots, you know, they immediately un- understood the message behind. So she uh, she was held by the by the by the Germans for a few hours before being released, but, and they wanted explanations, you know, like uh, what's that, uh, what do you mean? Uh, and she was released released thanks to Coco Chanel, who had a good relationship with uh, with the Germans. Yeah. And she was released after a few hours. But, you know, uh, we're talking about Second World War. Yep, you know, yep. they, were, they were not uh, funny people, the Germans at that time, in, uh, in an occupation land. So, you... I don't, had, I, 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 I'm not sure about the, if it's right what I'm going to say, but she had the guts. That's correct to say she had that? The guts, yeah, she did. She
0: had oh, the guts. I mean, to, to, do,
2: to do such a thing, you know, and of course, the, 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 the nice story of after the liberation of Paris in August 1944, uh, Cartier continued to to make that brooch, to manufacture that brooch, but then the the bird was out of the cage. Mm. So you have the version made during the occupation, the bird in the cage and after the liberation,
1: the bird out of the cage. Yeah, that's an amazing story, and as you said, she had the goods because people were sent to camps for less, probably. So, and those brooches, do we know where they are today? Or is oh, there,
2: there, there's,
1: there's a few of them, but
2: yeah, yeah there, there were a few of them. Uh, some are I, like,
0: actually, I have one here.
2: <laughs> no, yeah, actually, yeah, I, I, I sold one uh, not a long time ago. Awesome! So, uh, amazing. uh one in the cage. I had one in the cage that I sold not a long time ago. You know what? This is the first day. (laughs) They were were working in the courtyard, but yes, I sold one uh, not a long time ago, a bird in the cage. Uh, Some are... There there, there were some different versions, Um, like two or three different... uh, uh, birds in cage or out of the cage are are in the Cartier collection now. Yes. Always with the same colors. It's interesting like coral, lapis, diamond.
0: What would be your... um, What advice would you give someone who had no idea about Cartier and wanted to buy a piece of Cartier jewelry?
2: To buy a piece of Cartier jewelry, or to build a collection? <laughs> yeah. To buy a well, if you buy one piece. Yes. Okay. It's what
0: like, should you buy? Where should you buy it? Those kinds of things. No,
2: if you buy one piece, it's just a question of like you uh, being uh, uh, attracted by, uh, by a piece. And it's like, uh, okay, you like that piece. You know, it's Cartier. Cartier is probably uh, nowadays, still nowadays, the, 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 the most important name in our, uh, in our industry. I'd yes. say okay, so. Um, so, um, so you you don't take any risk buying a Cartier piece of jewelry. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say even it's a good investment. Um, but for someone uh, who would uh, uh, begin to to buy a Cartier jewelry, mm-hmm. I would say first buy a piece of Cartier. Uh, which looks like a piece of Cartier. It means that if you want to build a, a collection of uh, cars and if you want to buy a Ferrari, make sure that your car, that your Ferrari will looks like a Ferrari. You know?
1: It's red. It, no, but it's
2: important. It's important because when you want, sometimes, you know, you, you some people, they want to buy something like uh, out of the, out on the, how could I say, there is something very original. Yes. It's interesting. But you, I would first begin with something typical, mm-hmm. in a way. You know, and then after you can you can go into uh, so you some, can explore. something yeah. Yeah, different.
0: And with like. Uh, obviously a lot of copies out there the signatures it's very
2: it's very important to be to be careful Mm -hmm. it's very important to be careful there is um, if I could give one advice look carefully the way it's made even if it's not easy but a piece of jewelry by Cartier let's say uh, from the 20s Cartier Paris 1920 the quality is always, always extremely good. It does not exist, a Cartier Paris piece, from the Art Deco period, which is of bad quality. That does not exist. So, the the, the way the stones are set, the the feel when you you touch the piece, you know, it's not stiff, it's soft in a way. it's it's all the quality is there always always and that's what is important with Cartier.
0: So Matthew what an incredible opportunity we had to start off our podcast season speaking to Olivier Bachet, going to an exhibit in in Paris and really unearthing the prestige and influence of Jean Toussaint in the Cartier family's world
1: yeah it was it was an amazing um it was an amazing trip uh, i'm glad you pushed me into it but he he was a great he had great knowledge and great stories and, and uh he was so generous with his time so um and his, his, his book was beautiful i think as well i know we have a copy here to look at um there was on her influence there i mean we saw uh her s collection which i think was quite an important part. Um she actually her, her original uh, although her first piece, piece with Cartier was a wristwatch, she was in charge of this S collection um initially.
0: So the S department, um we saw a little department, bit of it, yes. <laughs> we saw a little bit of it in the um in the exhibit. And, you know, when I was looking through a lot of the, um, the stories about her, in particular, um, Francesca Cartier-Brickell, in her book on Cartier, she talks uh, a, about Jean Toussaint quite a bit as well. And she began in the S collection or the XS department. She was put in charge of the S department in 1913 by Louis Cartier. Um, because he could see her kind of flair for fashion. She came from lacemakers, so um, it was said that she could actually pick a piece of material up off the ground and cut it in one cut with scissors into the shape that was needed for something that was going to be part of the S department. So she did have this kind of innate ability to create beautiful things. She just didn't have the kind of skills like drawing, for instance. She didn't have all of those skills as tools in her belt. So designers, other designers became those tools for her. Moving from the S department in 1913, her and Charles Jaco become this kind of inside house rival. So, Uh, you know, we were talking before about um, rivalry in companies and for a company, two very outstanding uh, individuals in their own right, Charles Jaco as a designer and uh, Jean Toussaint as a creative director. These two were, um, you know, people that you want in your company And when you have people who are are like this, creatives, who are rivals, that can be really great for a company, but sometimes not so great for the individual.
1: Yeah, and that rivalry, I mean, yes, within Cartier, it probably motivated them both to kind of compete against each other, obviously with the main goal of, you know, promoting the Cartier name. it's a real interesting one, though, because Jacque was a designer. you know could you know draw pieces of jewelry and get them executed. She couldn't. So the way that she influenced the company uh, was completely different. She obviously worked through designers. Peter La Marchand was one of them that she would have worked a lot with. Um, and obviously the famous story that Olivier mentioned there. But I think her influence and the reason she was so successful at it and and it goes back to her youth it goes back to her early days in Cardiff she was a real shrewd business person I think very clever like brilliant with the clients brilliant with hosting events um, you know fostering relationships and ultimately as Olivier mentioned uh, on a few occasions, and I think it, it was something that stuck out for me from that interview. Like having left talking to Olivier, he mentioned that first and foremost, Cartier is a business, and you've got to make sales. You've got to make things be organized. You've got to, you know, you've got you've got to do those things. And she was first and foremost a businesswoman. I think that's why her influence, although although Jaco was a huge figure in Cartier, I think that's why her influence probably for me, stands out a little bit more. I don't know what your take would be on it, but she had that business edge on Jaco. Although Jaco was a fantastic designer, I think she was a bit, to, to use an Irish phrase, a bit cuter.
0: So, yes, she's pivotal in bringing Cartier into the correct circles. So, you know, you could have all the most beautiful designs in the world. Jaco could create you know, incredible one-off pieces with incredible gemstones, the the highest form of design available. But if nobody thinks that it's cool, if nobody thinks it's cutting edge, if nobody wants to wear it on their dresses or it doesn't feel right on the fashions of the time and it's not being worn by the socialites of the time – That design is going to be forgotten. It's not going to go into the history books. No no matter how beautiful, no matter how well executed it is, it's a forgotten piece. Somebody has to see the beauty of it. Somebody has to see it in motion. Somebody has to see it on the most influential women of that period. And that's what Jeanne Toussaint did. She was pivotal in creating A movement Um, and that's why we can't exactly put fingers on exactly what she did because she wasn't the one who created the pieces she wasn't the one who um, assembled anything she was the one who said it's cool or not and although that sounds like I know you know we're diminishing really what she did but her tick of approval created of movement
1: hmm. i don't think that's diminishing what you did we're, we're saying that her tick of approval was you know the the key thing if she gave the thumbs up to us it, it was probably going to be very successful for cartier and i you know depending on what side of the fence you're on some people think jaco was the the main man some people think toussaint was the main woman it, it just depends and that debate i think will probably never be fully settled Bush.
0: Yeah, rivals, rivals within a company, and I think now if they looked back on it, they'd probably chuckle to themselves and go, oh my gosh, you know, we, we spent our whole lives fighting against each other. In the end, who won? Well, Jaco wanted that position. He wanted creative director. In 1933, Jeanne Toussaint was the one who got the creative director feather in her cap, which of course would have upset Jaco Louis also had this you know additional personal relationship with Jean which Jean which continued throughout his life they wrote letters for the rest of his life she stayed faithful to the Cartier name and company, even though she was tried to be pulled away many, many different times from the company to assist in other projects, become part of other jewellery companies. Even after Louis's death, she brought herself to Claude, which was um, Louis's son who took over from Louis, and said, I will help you in any way that I can. She was extremely faithful to the Cartier name until her retirement um
1: and I think I think initially obviously the family had some reservations but by the end of it I think she was a a member of the Cartier family definitely a super enjoyable and exciting first trip to Paris of course the Cartier exhibition was fantastic and Olivier Bechet what a knowledgeable and interesting man expert in Cartier jewelry but well, we have some super influential women in the jewellery industry coming up too. Elise, who's next?
0: Well, we're going to be travelling all over for these next episodes. We're going to be talking about Susan Peron, Alma Peel, Elsa Peretti. And of course, we're going to be speaking to another Dubliner, Matthew.
1: Yes, the author of Women Jewelry Designers, Juliette Weir de la Rochefoucauld. That's going to be so exciting. Make sure you all tune in next up, Belle Perron. We're really looking forward to it. If you have any feedback at all, make sure you get in contact with us either on our socials at Matthew.Weldons or email us at experts at courtville.ie. Thank you very much, Elise, for joining me today. My co-hosts and of course, Ross, our producer. And most of all, I'd like to thank you all for joining us on our gem pursuit. Chat to you next time.